0: I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to your story. I'm your host, Ian Kath, and this is episode 51. Life experiences are a funny thing, aren't they? They're the sort of things that form our personality. And when we go through life, this personality is something that we then work with. Most of the time, we actually just take it for granted, but there are times when we actually have to make decisions. Will we go left or right in the fork in the road? Will we do the good or bad thing? It's funny, people often joke about the evil twin that they have inside them that would do something else. Today's show is about a person having to make conscious decisions that he wanted to walk a particular path rather than a path that he grew up in, and what came of that. Sorry it's been so long since I've done a show, everybody. It's been very, very busy. I've been working on my side project, wanting to get that up to speed. It's taking a lot of time, a lot of effort, and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, so I'm sort of making it up as I go. But hopefully by maybe the next episode I'll be able to let you know what it's about i'm excited about it hopefully it might be able to spin me some income and that will be good for your story because it means that i'll be able to actually afford to eat and things like that which is very nice so i'll tell you more about that as things evolve but i want to keep it a little bit hush at the moment when I do eventually get it all up, I'll make sure the information goes onto to the site. And the site, of course, is yourstorypodcast.com. You can go over there and leave a comment. There's a reminder of what the email is, but you should know that by now. It's chat at yourstorypodcast.com. Love to hear from you. Always do. And uh, there's a Facebook fan page as well. Sharing's important. Get it out. If you come across one of these episodes that you think is relevant to somebody, please share it around. It's, um, it's important that other people hear about some of these individual stories because it might be relevant to them. Things have evolved and I'll let you know a little bit more about that in regards to one of the previous episodes where maybe a uh, some stuff that was done to the lady that I spoke to in that she was harmed and uh, maybe the people, the perpetrators might be getting a visit from the police because of stuff that went down. Anyway, I'll let you know more about that as things evolve. I shouldn't say too much at the moment because it might have to go through the court system. But it's good to uh, help in some way. They actually... Took the audio from that and shared it with the police, so maybe that will actually help. Yeah, feels that makes me feel good to think that maybe I'm helping. Anyway, today's show has got music in it. You might just happen to hear in the background. And remember, that's from Iodo Promenade. If you like the tune, you can go to the post, uh, and at the bottom of it, there is actually a link where you can go and get this particular tune for free. Now, I'm a gentle sort of guy. I'm the sort of person who tends to avoid argument and confrontation. You know, I'll stand up and express my opinions where necessary, but I certainly won't go any of the biff. And I'm happy to walk away. If somebody thinks that I'm an idiot, I won't argue the point with them because I'd rather keep my nose intact. So I've never been one of these people who uh, has hung around the military, security, you know, the violence that is unfortunately part of our world. It's not part of the world that I understand at all. Today's show is about working and security. Coming from a military background and having an understanding of the psychology of violence and looking after people in these situations. But how does a person get into this and what sort of life background do they come from? What came out of this for me though is the choices that had to be made of going left or right when that fork in the road appeared. Of choosing violence or choosing the other path. And what exactly is the other path? Today we listen to Earl's story. 9th of March, 2010, sitting in the State Library with Earl. G'day, mate. How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you, too, mate. Let's talk about what you're up to. Tiffany introduced us, uh-huh. and she told me that you're in the security industry, that you're trained in Navy SEAL, SAS, <laughs> something, no, that's like, pretty scary. <laughs> something like that, and that you're a damn nice fella, that uh, you wouldn't want to mess with you. So Big teddy bear. Big teddy bear, yeah. but yeah, I'm thinking more like maybe a, a nice, I'm thinking gentle Ben here actually. You, know, you just don't want to mess with him though or else you'll rip your head off. Well, first of all, let me describe you. You're a tall black man with an accent from the US? The States, yeah. It is the States. We're best in the States. Originally
1: Philadelphia, about three hours south of New York City. How
0: long have you been in Australia?
1: Ooh. It's going on several years now, I'll probably say about six seven years now. I right. uh, became a citizen about three years ago. Congratulations. Welcome uh, board. board. Thank you. <laughs> Here for good. Not going anywhere else.
0: Did you have to give up your American citizenship for it? No, yeah.
1: however, uh, I think until recently the U.S. and Australia have an understanding, so you can have dual citizenship.
0: But how come you're in Australia?
1: My wife and I, we've traveled pretty extensively. We've lived in a lot of the different cities around the US and things like that. And it finally got to a, a point where uh, my wife's originally from Ireland. So it got to this point. She's not one of
0: those gorgeous pale skinned redhead Irish. Glasses. Nah,
1: she's the, she's the other gorgeous, uh, not pale skinned, brunette. So uh, she's,
0: she's the, um, the Basque, the Spanish Irish.
1: I guess that's what they yeah, yes. I remember when I met, she was like, why do they all think we're redheads? Yeah, I guess it was a combination that um, we had kids, and then we were kind of like... How many kids have you got? Uh, two. Yeah, two beautiful kids, boy and girl, so we got a matching set and that's it.
0: Yeah.
1: I think originally when it started it off, we were going to move to Ireland, and then when it got closer, we were thinking about more and more, and then we said, nah, and I had a brother-in-law here in Australia. We came over and visit, and loved the country. We lived in Texas for quite a while, and Australia reminds me a lot of Texas. The coastline
0: um, of Texas? Galveston and places
1: like that? No, we lived in Houston, Austin, uh, right in the middle of the heart of Texas and everything, I guess you could say. But, um, yeah, we were there for a couple of years and then moved to Philadelphia, and then finally got to a point where we were going, okay, what do you want to do? And I think it was, for me, uh, it was mainly the way of life in Australia that really appealed to me. I know in my line of work, uh, one of the things I love personally about Australia, I wasn't looking on my shoulder every two minutes. Uh, just because of the nature of the work I was doing, the lifestyle itself and the people is what drew us here to Australia. Where you just fell in love with everything.
0: So, give us your background. Ooh. Where do you come from? <laughs> you come from the states. Yeah. You're working in the security industry. What's your training? Are you ex-military?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I guess I, I guess I'll better start from the beginning of my little bit of my story. Um, I was in the military for a number of years, uh, ten years actually altogether, and spent some time in the military police, and then later on in special operations. And uh, what what arm what of the military? Uh, army, army, and I did a special assignment with the navy for a short period of time as well. And it was one of those things. Uh, after you get out of the military, most guys go into law enforcement, and which was the path I was going to take. My father was a detective, a cop in the states for about 20 years. So I was gonna take that path as well. And then finally, I guess uh, when I got out of the military, I wasn't uh, very happy. Um, I was kind of confused, uh, didn't really know where I'd fit it in. And I started taking on consulting roles until I guess I sorted myself out, so to speak. And my first consulting role was for a nightclub that was a bit ready to be shut down. And this nightclub uh, had five live bands every night in Texas. Uh, so it tells you the size mm-hmm. and, and the scope it was. And it would be ready to be shut down because of the um, the attitudes of the bouncers. And they've put a lot of people in the hospital and the police were finally just shutting it down. And I came on board and pretty much after six months turned the entire club around, turned it upside down, and shook it up.
0: By sorting the bouncers out?
1: One of the things I always tell a lot of people when it comes to security is some of them are still with a 20th century mentality when it comes to security. And I think, especially after 9/11, uh, the world has looked at security in a different way. Even when I got out, the way I viewed security was a little bit uh, different from what they had at this nightclub. So I kind of changed their uh, their hiring practices was the biggest thing that uh, changed. Because I knew the mindset of the managers was that let's get big guys. You know, um, big guys are great. But the big guys, what we used to say in the military, uh, operator headspace. If you don't, you know, there got to be some brain, gray matter behind the bigness. Right. And at this particular club, it wasn't at that time. So, so uh, just
0: beefcakes, just yeah, they just try the weight around. Yeah, pretty, yeah uh, I
1: mean, ac- excellent in certain kind of brawls, uh, mm-hmm. but also on the legal side, were a, a lawyer's dream. Um, I was training them in um, a lot of behavioral things. On how to deal with people. Um, I had a uh, wonderful mentor when I later on found out my path I wanted to do, I started doing uh, close personal protection. And uh, one of the guys who was my mentor had told me one time that, uh, Earl, I would go through any door in the world with you or the bad guy, but I got to turn you from Rambo to 007. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, you just I got to develop those people skills and teach you how to keep those hard skills locked up in the dungeon until it's time to bring them out. Uh, When I got out of the military, I was just very direct, very, uh, you didn't sugarcoat things as much. So I think he polished me a little bit. And what I learned from that, as well as other courses I was taking, governmental courses, was that um, I was starting to learn more about behavior with people, how to get people. He one time said, you got to be able to tell a person to go to hell and for them to enjoy the trip. And that's the biggest thing I learned from him. So I started applying what I learned, not just from uni, but also from him and other uh, people I learned from. I started teaching those skills. And our rate of uh, having to physically get involved with someone dramatically decreased. So after I did that, uh, the club turned around. I got recognition from law enforcement in Texas. They started asking, you know, we got a club over here that we know about, can you turn that one around? Uh, at that time, I was nightclubs wasn 't my scene. Uh, a friend of mine got me in touch with a gentleman in New York, and that was my first civilian bodyguard job. so that was probably my first civilian protection job for an activist in New York City and found something I really enjoyed doing. It was more the uh, most people when they think of bodyguards, they think of um, you know the dark sunglasses, the dark suit, the typical stereo types. Um, However, they don't see the back end, the logistics, the planning that is really the forefront of keeping their client alive. That, for me, was what was appealing to it because it made me feel like I was back in the military doing the mission. Uh, The same thing when you're doing a mission is all the planning to actually get you out of harm's way and the skill sets that you have in case, you know, what we call Mr. Murphy shows his ugly head and things go to, you know, crap.
0: Give us an idea of the uh, planning that goes involved, yeah, a scenario.
1: Um, I had one particular case, it was a stalking uh, involving a child and her parents. And a lot of the things that we had to do for them, we had to basically find out their itinerary, had to find out their wellness, healthy. Uh, and I know even for the family, it was kind of unusual uh, for us to be asking questions like, do you have a heart condition or any of those things? Because again, most people's mindset is that uh, bodyguards just dare to look intimidating and stop people and this and that, they don't realize that once I'm on the clock, my job is to ensure your entire welfare and safety. Uh, one of the big things that uh, really plays a large role in it is what we call threat assessments that we do in the very beginning. And we basically take a look at the threat, their capabilities, their resources, all those things, if we have that intel. So once we have a threat assessment, then we go about the process of actually doing the logistics of, okay, we need to get them from here, to the movie theater, okay. So we look at the routes to get there. And then we take, We also come up with contingency routes. We also take in place depending on the client. Uh, where's the nearest hospital? Um, where's the nearest? Do we have? Do we have their doctor information? All those things.
0: So, are you looking at situations as severe as what you see in the movies of something like a drive-by shooting?
1: Um, yeah. It could be. Yeah, we're also taking in consideration for those aspects as well, like. Uh, in the States, uh, getting a crime analysis report of a particular area is very easy to get. Um, so a lot of times, that's one of the first things we do. If we find out they're going to be going to this particular restaurant in this particular area, sometimes we will get a crime analysis report, what kind of, what kind of um, violent activity occurs in that area. So
0: you're just protecting them against things like a mugging that just happens to anybody, mm-hmm. or are you trying to protect them more against something specific that's- like a they got to be kidnapped because... That's what the threat assessment does. It It takes a look at,
1: like, we might be hired... um, I'll I'll actually give you an actual case. Yeah, Um, Yeah. It was involving a family who was being stalked, and they were being stalked for over about a year. Stalker had actually taken a, I guess, uh, infatuated with this one lady for a particular period of time before we got called into it. Um, She worked at a video chain, and one particular day, I guess, as it escalated, it was escalating over a period of time, he was uh, getting more and more aggressive. And the final one was that he took an actual um, movie case. This is when they have the VHS, so that tells you when it was. Mm. And he had taken and put an explosive device in it. The only thing he had left out the actual material of the, the explosive material itself and put a card in there letting her know that this could have been for you, blah, 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 blah. blah. The
0: next time I'll put the explosive in. It.
1: Yeah. What alarmed the police, you know, they were like, oh, thank God, it's not real, it was when they test the actual outside of the container, it had a residue of the explosive on it. So they knew that not only did he have the capabilities, he actually had the stuff. So that kicked this game way up bigger than what it was before. So we ended up actually bringing the team down where we actually provided protection for her and her family. Um, we didn't know how long the protection we were going to be providing for them. So we had to make it pretty comprehensive. So there were some things I had to go through that they, you know, I would prefer they confer in us before they do it. It'll be, you know, somewhat normal, but you'll always have one of us, uh, me and my partner, with you at all times.
0: So you, do you actually live in the house with them?
1: Uh, that was another thing we had to work out. Um, at that point in time, we didn't. Uh, it was until about two or three days later they actually uh, asked that, okay, one, one of y'all come in the house. We normally were outside. So you just spent yeah, time
0: yeah a van or a car just yeah actually on. in the
1: car and we would just take shifts. Uh, that was to do that long uh, term. I was fortunate. Uh, my partner, um, he was twenty three years in the U.S. Special Forces. Uh, so for him, this was like nature of the B.C., You know, it was fine. And we had shifts where we were one person would come on, we take another one. Uh, they primarily wanted us to be what I'm doing today. day. Um, so. It was also in a little small town where I stood out a little bit more than my partner. Uh, They didn't have too many African-Americans in this town so we had to really kind of play down my role a little bit but also being a little town a lot of people already knew what was going on. So it was it was a tricky, tricky assignment Um, but at the same time we did our jobs quite well. We were there with them for about a month and a half. If they wanted
0: to go out and buy a loaf of bread, Mm -hmm. was it a case of, hey Earl, Want to go out and get a loaf of bread, and then you'd have to all get in the car together and go out and no, get No, that? Uh, that
1: that kind of stuff was planned for, and that's what I mean by the planning that's involved. We were actually getting, and that was part of the interview process. Uh, a lot of times, like uh, if it's a case of, um, say like Pink, and she gets ready to come out on the stage, well with a celebrity, not only we're protecting her welfare, we have to protect her dignity as well. So what that means is that there are certain things to that person's life, because they're very high profile, that could be more detrimental to their career than if someone jumped up and hit them. So, for say like a celebrity like Pink, we would do something like a uh, stage assessment. We would actually take a look and make sure there's no wet spots on the stage. Uh, we would sometimes, if they needed to get certain things, we would already have that stuff readily available for them in their room. We would make sure they, so we coordinate a lot of times with high-profile people. We actually coordinate the things that they need. We know what they're comfortable with.
0: So, why you become personal assistance.
1: That's where we are. That's exactly what we are. Actually, one recently, I actually asked the um, client if they could just let all their friends in them know that I'm just a new uh, event coordinator. Okay. I just coordinate their events, you know, and they were just kind of, oh, okay. I said, because I don't want to alarm people and stuff like that when you say, oh.
0: Um, so I take it you're not the dark glasses suit wearing Spook
1: no. that we all see. No, that's the that's the glamour TV version right. of that. And also, the, there's a difference between civilian bodyguards and the, say, like the Federal Police Protective Agency or the Secret Service. Uh, those guys have the resources and the capabilities and the manpower to do a lot more. And those are the ones you always see in the movies. They make them look all, you know, sinister. Civilian protect
0: yeah, but that's right. actually their uniform anyway. So that when you see uh, the presidents yeah. standing there, that's the uniform. You know they're the spooks. Yeah, yeah. And they want to be obvious. Like, oh that. Yeah. there's yeah. a whole group yeah. of other people in the background who we don't notice, who are also yeah, and security people under. in
1: the actual crowd themselves. Right? Yeah. 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 In the civilian world, it's a little bit different. Sometimes uh, we do have that, and we've got to have that overt security where you know why this person is standing there, mm. uh, because that will keep certain individuals at bay. Um, The other uh, form that we tend to use a lot more in the civilian protection side is what we call protective intelligence. Uh, We also use at times protective surveillance. Uh, Say you have a team that's covering someone but you also have another team that are posing as a drunk sitting on the corner and that person is basically watching your back as you move through various areas. So you may have four people who are actually shadowing you, but seeing if you're picking up people who are shadowing you.
0: There's a circle beyond the circle that might be threatening exactly. you. Exactly. And they're keeping an eye on them.
1: Yeah, and in the case of, um, in the case of this uh, one lady, um, that's what we actually used. So you had myself and my partner protecting her and her family. So whenever we went out to the park or whatever and stuff, we also had two other agents who were very low key, wearing shorts and a bike, who had surveillance mics hidden so they could talk and they could tell us, give us a heads up, if something is in our area that's out of the norm. And then we would have that time advantage to move them to another area. Because that's, that's the big thing that you're trying to do. You're not there to get into a shootout and fight. Most, uh, that's the movies again, and unfortunately, statistically, a lot of attacks on high-profile people, violent attacks, assassination attempts, um, when it's initiated, and this is where I guess military-wise I understand the concept, it's uh, similar to an ambush. An ambush is designed that no one gets out of it alive. Now in regards to a bad guy wanting to take a person, they're going to have to be a little bit more strategic with the ambush because they want their package, they want to get it and you know, kidnapping or whatever. However, uh, if it's a something like an assassination attempt, they may care not who's in that kill zone. So one of the things that works on our side is time. Because when someone initiates like an ambush or whatever, very rarely are people gonna get out of it alive. It's designed to just totally decimate everything there. So our so, primary job is to what we call cover and evacuate, to get that person out of there, not to stand there and shoot it out or fight it out or, You know all the flashy stuff you see on the TV because our primary job is that person's safety. Standing there getting into a toe-to-toe battle with the bad guys is not going to ensure that person's safety. Actually the longer they're in in that environment their safety level is starting to go down. I was teaching a course actually here in Brisbane and I was explaining to some of the guys that uh were walking through downtown Brisbane and it was a mock setting and we we're trying to show them that uh, how difficult it is to protect someone just walking down the street in Brisbane. Now they really understand the threat assessment because if they're walking down the street and say they don't know what the threat is, well then everything they see in front of them is a possible subject. But if they know exactly uh, who the subject is and things like that, they say, okay. So it gives them a different parameter how they're going to. Handle walking that person through that environment. Oh, I see.
0: So you took them down the street to express to them that it all could be a threat, depending on, and that's overwhelming. Yeah, if, if you don't have any intelligence on. Yeah, exactly, and that's what, we to, that's what we were trying. That's what we were trying to show them because you can tell it's so an ambush them, you know, if it's something as bad as an ambush. Yeah. everybody there could take oh, yeah. out whoever's in the yeah. area,
1: and that's what we were yeah. trying to explain to them why it is and so important that you have intelligence and planning from the client or from the threat assessment.
0: And what would that be? I can imagine government agency, if the Prime Minister's coming through, they just sterilize the whole area, yes, basically. That's it. And yeah. so they know everything that comes into the environment yeah. is sterile. And that's basically that
1: what you're trying to do most of the time. But
0: if, you're, if you've got somebody you're trying to protect, and you take them down the Mall here, the Queen yeah. Street Mall, it could be anybody. Would, the intelligence that you're after, would that be to identify that as a male in their 40s? So yeah. you only have to keep mm-hmm. an eye on those people. Yeah, okay. it,
1: I mean, it could, and, and again, it, again, it depends on the threat. If you know specifically, it's the, um, the ex-boyfriend, because uh, I've taken, um, did pro bono work in the past for uh, women's shelters in the States. I knew that I had to pick them up at, from the shelter, take them to court, be there in court with them, and bring them back. Now, when I'm doing that type of protection, I know what the threat is. I know that it's just one individual who's the ex-boyfriend or ex-husband. However, I know that, but I have to also do my due diligence of others because the ex-boyfriend or whatever could also hire someone to do it besides so dirty work. So that's something else out it. So what you're looking for when you're not constantly walking around this paranoia looking at everyone. What you're constantly doing when you're moving through those environments is that you kind of have a subtle awareness of behaviors uh, and that's what I try to train and that's what now with my company, that's what we're really big into behavior.
0: You understand the difference between having television where you see people and having a peripheral awareness where you have that calmness where you can see your entire field of view Mm -hmm. at all times. Is that how you have to walk? Basically, even though you're looking straight ahead, you know exactly who's beside you or who has moved into... Your path behind you, even though you can't see. Him. Is that the way you work? And you're constantly aware of you're constantly paying that attention. high attention level yeah. of awareness.
1: Yeah, it's uh, that it's must be re- exhausting. Yeah, I was going to say. I know um, when I first got here, I uh, I used to be a security director for Tiffany's okay. in the states, and I had left and moved here. And later on, they uh, found out I was here and asked me to look after Australia. And I said, yeah. And the first thing I did when I got there, I had to change. The, the mindset of the guys who were working for me at that time. We started, I started teaching them things about behavioral things to look for and the first comment I had from one of the guys God, man, I got home and I'm just wet. I'm worn out. And I was explaining to them mental stress is actually more taxing on the body than physical stress. And when you're standing there and you're constantly actively looking for behavior pools. And this going over a period of two three four hours it, it wears you out there again are lessons learned from the military is that um or anyone who's a lifesaver a fire fireman a police officer training tends to take over when you have mm-hmm. the adrenaline rush
0: mm, i've heard primacy and learning yeah it's one of those aspects of it you know, exactly what you've learned and is ingrained in your neurological network yep. basically just snaps into being yeah i used to do a lot of skydiving
1: Oh, that's a good, yeah, and, good example. And, yeah,
0: and there is primacy in learning. There, you just overtrain certain yeah. behaviors so that when the shit hits the fan, yeah. you're doing it you're without just even real realizing thinking
1: about it. it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that's where I try to uh, get the guy. So sometimes you don't have the, you know, we would do what we kind of call uh, tabletop drills, and I was always getting their mind basically rewiring the way that mm-hmm. they would respond to things but um there's a lot yes, of psychology
0: here have you, a have whole you, lot have you did lot. Be, have you done a whole after you left the military or during the military did you do any psychology social science uh, type studies? yeah
1: i actually have a university degree in sociology and then um and government and constitutional law but i um later in the
0: u.s on, or australian in or? the u.s okay. okay
1: and i later uh decided that um, i got really fascinated in why people do what they do that's fascinating. Yeah, thing. and that's when I started learning. I had the um, opportunity. I started learning things from Tony Robbins, mm-hmm. and had the opportunity of meeting him twice.
0: How important is the psychology in amongst all this when actually dealing? Like, you know, is it eighty percent of the game?
1: I, for me personally, I say yes. I remember when uh, my wife met some of my buddies who was in special operations, and she, uh, <laughs> she actually one, she later on said, uh, "You guys are scary." And I said, why? I said, you know, they were joking, they're clowns. And she's like, that's why they're scared. She said, they're nothing what I thought they were going to be. She said, I thought they were going to be some, they weren't what
0: she thought, you know. Uh, Which were, makes uh, them more of a threat in a way because you don't know how you could turn bad.
1: Yeah, and also that they were uh, extremely intelligent. Uh, like uh, one of my friends, um, he actually speaks five languages fluently, you know. Um, another one has a PhD, you know, and these are guys who are, There used to be operators who'd doing a lot of things. It is a lot of psychology. Uh,
0: Mindset is a lot to play in it as well. Tiffany said, when I recorded the episode with her two episodes ago, that one of the strengths she had is that she's a little waif, attractive woman. Mm -hmm. And she could actually turn people around, especially if they were big, boofy blokes, you know, (laughs) who needed to hand over their Harley Davidson because they hadn't paid their loan fees. She found that she had a better way of getting them to act than a big, tough fella. Mm-hmm. Do you find the same thing plays out? Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, do you find, because you're a, you're a big fella, yeah. do you find that you sometimes you're, it's better off for you to actually pull back, or do you just change your personality? Change your personality. Okay. Yeah. So you uh, can. That's that,
1: that's that thing that uh, uh, my mentor say, said being able to turn you from Rambo to 007. So you can sing uh, like
0: a teddy bear. And, yeah, get, and get uh, people to do what you want.
1: Uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I always say, it's uh, <laughs> my son teased me and said dad uses the force, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Jedi mind trick is what he call, calls it. Um, and, that, and that's how I got involved with what I do currently, because when one of the things I started realizing from the military, from providing protection on people, that everything seemed to come down to the person's mental outlook. So as, a, as I noticed, a lot of guys in, that uh, used to work in U.S. Special Operations, most of them get degrees in psychology or international political science or something that's shown a mechanism, how mechanisms work. Again, it, it just all narrows down to psychology and, and when you're protecting someone, it plays even a larger role.
0: What's the name of your company?
1: Uh, Life Force One okay. International.
0: Okay, and what's the URL? Website address? Uh,
1: lifeforce1international.com
0: Okay, and you look after which part? Just Brisbane, South East Queensland, or have you got agents uh, around Australia? Pretty much anywhere.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, it's mostly a consulting. We mostly do consulting. Don't really do the bodyguard stuff anymore. Okay,
0: what, so it's mainly consulting stuff and organizing other bodyguards, is it?
1: Uh, at times I have for people, yeah, right. but uh, it's are you, mostly now... you looking now. at
0: celebrities? Are you looking at the corporate world or yeah, politicians? I, yeah. No. From, from my humble, middle-aged Australian background, <laughs> we don't need security. Yeah. You know, there's no need for it. No, I mean, there's no threats in Australia. Yeah. No, that's well, my attitude. I'm, I know that's yeah, true. Yeah.
1: And that, that's interesting you said it, because um, I have friends, uh, I have a mate of mine, ASIO, have friends who uh SAS, have friends who are in the federal police and law enforcement. They don't have that same outlook as the typical Australian. Uh, now, I know that has a lot to do with um, perception. And well, they're
0: working in that world, yeah.
1: They? and also that world that they tend to work in um, isn't privy to the rest of the masses, so to speak, uh, because for what they do, has to be a lot of anonymity. So a lot of things you don't see on the news and things like that. A lot of things that I have seen occur in the U.S., they could have been prevented. They could have been things that could have slowed down. The fallout from it. And it came back down to people having a different change in mindset on how they react to things. Quick example of that is one client I had on the Gold Coast who had the security issues at their nightclub and asked my opinion what I think they should do. And I said, I would change the guys you have at the door to a young girl and an older woman. And he was like, What did they have? They had uh, really two huge guys standing there. Um, One of them had a slight attitude problem with everybody, which I understand too, because I did crowd control. I know that after a while working in that world where people are constantly berating you and you're very limited on what you can do too, the guys who do crowd control got it also hard too. I know we see a lot of the negative stuff in the media. However, they also got a pretty difficult job too because their hands are, pretty tied with a lot of things as well. He changed those two little things and didn't have that many problems at the front and, door. And the young and older woman, basically yeah. all the problems went away? The older woman, uh, because some guys you can talk to as the mom, they tend not to want to get so volatile if a lady says, look, no, you're not coming in. And only, or some of them react really well to a young woman. Yeah. Uh, don't know too many guys. Now they did have the big guy back in his back but you know but yeah but he was he, was
0: he was just around
1: the corner yeah with one if eye. they needed yeah. any help like but that was one that, and that was a whole new concept mm. they they and it worked well yeah very well um now he's getting ready to do it to a couple of his clubs just changed it and he had just asked me about it, like what made you come up with that and i just said that it's just sometimes it's perception. That's mm. it's
0: my Well that's what it's Tiffany not, said. She said that you know she could get a lot done because she's totally non-threatening. Yeah. But she actually knows her craft. She, yeah. She can uh, actually hurt somebody if she needed to. Yeah. And,
1: and, that's, and that's what I was trying to get across when I said And that, have uh, you
0: had to hurt anybody?
1: <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> I've not have to hurt anyone. Uh I don't know how to answer that, <laughs> like in my entire career. Well, or... okay,
0: let's be, let's, yeah, have you had to, um, have, have, have I've
1: taken my weapon out uh, twice when I was in the States, uh, all, in... all working on protective assignments. Okay, and threaten them with it? Yeah,
0: yeah. Have you ever uh, had to unload it into somebody?
1: Uh, not in, not in the protective mode, no. no okay, no, what like about in the reason. military? That's a different world, totally different world. Do you want to go there? No. <laughs> totally different world. Okay. Um, but in the civilian world, now, I, um, I think one time was an um, uh, activist in New York. And uh, New York and L.A. It's weird how that happens. And nothing happened. I uh, was able to keep them at bay while the, per- uh, the rest of the team got the person out of there. I ended up getting my we- uh, weapons drawn on me, though know, from police officers. Um, Who didn't realize you were security? Yeah, well they have no way of knowing, no, you know, no. so they're treating That's me right. as a threat. And yep. all you know, all I did is do exactly comply with them, but I'm telling them to keep their eye on this guy in front of me, which they did, because they don't know what's going on. Um, and also because in the states, law enforcement officers are on duty all the time. So even though you're not in a police uniform, uh, in some cities you still are supposed to be armed because you're still a police officer. Right. Uh, it's not like you or police halls from 9 to 5, and then that's it. Now you're a regular person. Well, I
0: understand here in Australia they check their weapons in, don't they? Yeah. They, yeah. they never take them home with them. Yeah, it's different. Yeah.
1: And I just told them who I was and told them, keep your weapon on this person here because I think they have a weapon on them. And then they end up, once they searched everyone, found out who was a good guy, bad guy, and took us all in, and I show them my credentials and who I'm working for and probably investigating firm. And that was great. What we
0: see in the media, mm-hmm. are there people like that?
1: I always say that... The really good movies are a combination of the truth and fantasy put together
0: can you enjoy an action movie that is total fantasy you know like a a rambo Uh, you know that is that is complete fantasy yeah that's what i call entertainment entertainment like uh you know it's never that's nowhere near reality
1: i just seen the movie recently uh hurt locker yeah which which one the academy award yesterday yeah and um i heard um my brother-in-law was begging me to go see it he kept saying i really think you enjoy it but my sister-in-law knows that I'm not really big into a lot of war movies and stuff. And uh, I was like, yeah, i will going check it out. And I actually went to go see it and uh, I liked it, loved it. I have friends over in that part of the world and stuff and I uh, talked to some of them and they said, well, the movie was really good, we enjoyed it, but they took a lot of poetic license with the way those guys really are. They're not exactly like they are in that movie. But, you know, they they enjoyed it and they said, you know, when you're making a movie, you have to play with it to make the story entertaining. And that's the thing I always tell people, that you have to remember that movies are designed to entertain.
0: It sounds like you're always working on the mental stuff, and Mm -hmm. that's most of the work. How much physical training do you need to keep yourself in check? For
1: protective? Yeah. yeah. For the work um, you're doing I would yourself. say that you have to be fairly fit is the word that I like to use. I know um, that's what I would ask when guys were doing work for uh, Tiffany's and I had to use uh, contracted security people and I would kind of tell them and say, look, they don't have to be 6'6 uh, six, six or 6'7 six, or whatever, I say, unfortunately, in this type of security, I don't mean anything negative with it, I said, but their size won't really matter if somebody really wants to come and get these jewelries because they're not going to come in empty handed. Uh, and I said, and their size doesn't really matter. I used to tell guys in the um, bodyguard courses, had a lot of martial art guys. Um, I have a heavy martial art background myself. I've never seen a karate guy block an AK-47 round with his foot. You know, And the guys laughed and joked around like in you. the classroom and there was some truth. They understood what I was trying to say. There's other skill sets that are play a large role in keeping your client safe. And with that one stalking case, I remember when the guys were trying to figure out who was going to spend the first two or three days in with the family. Dave, he had just uh, he was like, uh, "Dude, I just got out of the military, so I'm not very, um, you know, don't okay. really get the social thing yet to sit there and chit chat." So he's, that's uh, great that he good.
0: was even aware of that. Well, that's that's
1: what I mean about yeah. the difference. Even the stereotype about military people, it's a stereotype. I know when we were watching the movie, my kept saying, uh, why is it the scientist keeps talking to the marine guy like he's an idiot? You know, And then later on, she gradually develops a respect for him, find out that there's more beneath that. What I would like to say, I, th- I think people tend to generalize.
0: I think there's a belief that in order to be... In the military Mm. the training that you going you go through dehumanizes you and turns off a lot of those social skills that you Mm. have outside of the military I think that
1: was the thing that uh, threw my wife off a little bit was that people have that stereotype of uh, military personnel and I think what they later on realize is that uh, yeah they do do go through uh, training that makes them number one very decisive because a lot of things that occur in the heat of battle, you can't stand around and kind of go, "Oh, what do I do?" I wouldn't agree that it dehumanizes you. There's now a lot more help for the guys when they come back. A couple of friends of mine that are coming back um, from places around the world, and um, and they have that thousand-yard stare. You know, I know my brother has said, "You know, how do you go from like a you know the movie Hurt Locker, and then suddenly you're thrust in." Going to the McDonald's or going to pick up milk, you know, for your child and stuff. And I kind of explained. I said, uh, there's certain things that there's facilities now and things out there for soldiers. I think now that weren't there years ago.
0: What do you think of Anzac Day?
1: Oh, love it. Yeah, I mean, every um, it's interesting because uh, my wife knows that um, no matter where we are, whenever there's a Memorial Day for. Um, soldiers, doesn't matter what country, Ireland, wherever, um, if we're there, she, uh, she always kind of takes the kids and she'll just kind of tell me to you know, go, go
0: say hello. You've got this career based on the military, mm. and, well, no, it was originally, mm. but it's now spun over to looking after people's welfare against mm. unfor- you know, ugly situations. But if you could wave a magic wand on human societies. Mm-hmm. What do you think you'd like to create?
1: What I know I would like to create? Um, I guess I have to explain a little bit about my company. What triggered what I do now, what triggered it all, was the one client I had, the stalking situation. Uh, as I got to live with them a little bit longer, I found out that the uh, I had clued in on certain behavioral things, we were a child. And I had in the back of my mind have thought that maybe the child was abused and found out I was spot-on, uh, they were sexually abused. Because I developed a really good relationship with this family, I really, after that, started studying about that. Um, and later on, even here, I started a nonprofit called Protecting My Child. And I started teaching and educating people on how to recognize predatory behaviors in those who try to harm children. People, um, like another misconception, they always, you hear stranger danger. I Think in Australia, 95% of uh, child molestations are strangers. Their friends or family. What I started noticing is people saying, "Well, that's too hard to tell if Uncle Bob or somebody's doing it." And I was kind of saying, "No, I don't agree. You can. You just need the education to be able to recognize it." So I really started taking a look and going, "Well, maybe there is some. Maybe I can take the science and put it in a way that people would get it." came up with a um, program where I teach the parents on how to recognize predatory behaviors. Because you kept hearing, uh, and I also did another course because people kept, who were victims of crime, kept saying that it was random and I kept going, it's not random, you're selected. You know, and then I had someone at a party go, well what do you mean I was selected? You know, I said, you were picked. I said, "If you ever been a victim of a crime, you were picked for a specific reason. <laughs> it got into a heated conversation and then that's when I knew that's what I wanted to do while I was here. Cause I was seeing things here that it has not gotten to the full-blown scale it has in the States. But I it's like I see the precursors to it. If it's something that people don't take seriously, all it's gonna do is just expand until finally it gets to a critical mass that now you're reactionary. The bullying situation isn't just a one little bandage and now it's all fixed, that the bully picked the victim for a reason. So I also talk about the bully and, you know, make the bully, I don't point anyone out, but make them kind of in their own head, examine their own behavior, you know, because sometimes they don't even realize they are bullying, sometimes they just think they're having fun, uh, because bullying is about power. And then also have the victim, I don't point them out, but they know who they are, start re-examining the way that they do things as well, it's not saying it's their fault, but kind of showing that if you remove the victim, you don't have bullying. And then the third component of that is the people who stand around and watch it occur. Now they figure that just standing there, not doing anything, they're not doing anything, but they are doing something by not doing anything. Uh, worst thing good men could do is to watch evil thrive and not do anything. And so I guess in the big scheme of thing, what if I had a magic wand? I'm, my company is designed to give people education to change the world around them, so they don't live in fear. They don't live in Hatred or violence is the big thing. You know, I remember the first time I saw a violent uh, situation happen in front of me. It was, uh, I was maybe 12 coming out of a movie theater and a guy got shot. And um, I had learned all this first day stuff I was fascinated by it. And I immediately started treating the person and everything. And um, and that was my first time seeing violence. And I, when I talk to schools and I talk to kids, I use my own life as a backdrop for what I'm trying Mm to strategies that I try to teach and i was kind of um you know that was my first time i remember the first time i finally realized i was black that i was different um got shot at that was the first time i remember it
0: uh, got shot home. at or yeah, shot did at. you get shot no shot at they missed yeah
1: good and um i remember um we were walking home from school and you know, the N-word this, N-word that, and we like threw words back at them, and then we were just laughing, and all of a sudden they'd spent the car around, we were laughing, this kid's running. Here, boom, and next thing you see, the telephone pole, There ramp house, and the wood blew off. And the make a long story, short, sure, I'm not gonna get into the details of that, but later on, my father was the one that picked me up when the police arrived in the store that I ran into. They realized that my father was a lieutenant, and that was my dad, and so he came and picked me up, and I remember in the car, I was just driving, I was just staring out the window, and he was like, you know, are you all right? And I was like, Dad, they shot at us. And he was like, yeah, I was going to have the little talk with you about, you know, just human beings. What did he say to you? Um, we didn't really say very much in the car. Um, it was when I got home and I was just thinking, I mean, I've already heard about hatred and racism and you see it on TV and the news. and. I heard the story when my mother was growing up, uh, she got smacked because she drank out the wrong water fountain uh, when she was a little girl, and I heard that story, you know, so I heard all those things, but it didn't sink into me that other human beings could have a hatred to another human being that they haven't even met, and that was my wake-up call to it. Uh, I had other wake-up calls, I remember uh, they didn't know I was for a job, they didn't know I was sitting on the other side of a partition, I overheard what they were saying. So I knew I wasn't getting that job. <laughs> <laughs> but the N-word came out quite a few times. Time. I was like, oh, okay, I might want to go to the next interview. Um, but it was interesting because even my, um, my brother and I, we've had heated conversations about it. And he said, I, I don't, the stuff that's happened to you in your life, with race, he said, I just don't see how you keep. He said, like, all your friends, uh, you know, you have white friends, Asian friends all over the spectrum. He said, you're not, you don't have any, anger towards it. And so I said, said, to be honest, Dad had a lot to do with that. I remember he told me, he said, it's going to be the hardest thing in the world to learn to treat men as men. The hardest thing in the world is not to put people in a box. Does that
0: mean that you've ended up with multiracial friendships? Mm, Because you don't perceive yourself as any different to them, so they don't perceive you as any different?
1: Yeah, I, I have friends all over the world. Doesn't matter what, the, and that's it. Have uh, you
0: seen much racism here in Australia towards you?
1: Um, <laughs> because somebody had that conversation
0: with me the other night. Yeah, because uh, three because, or four because you, know, you yeah. you're black, but yeah. you're not Aboriginal. Yeah, that's yeah. obvious.
1: Yeah, so. um, no, uh, not not towards me because I'm black. I have ran across maybe one because American, or two because American. Um, well, that was going to be the next question. <laughs> yeah, I, that was that. I don't immediately buy into the, okay, you hate me, so I'm going to hate you. Uh, and I also think that contributed a lot to my experiences uh, when I was a soldier, seeing war firsthand, up front, um, not from the television, not from sitting in a chair, but seeing. I've seen the same thing with reporters who've uh, been in the war zones, changed their entire lives for the rest of their lives. because. It's no longer a theory. This is real, Mm -hmm. you know. And they have a different outlook on how they see the world, how they see people. I know for... My my wife sometimes make a joke that um, what I do now is um, kind of like appeasement or whatever and stuff uh, from my soul. You know, if you believe in uh, spirituality and stuff. And I know my main focus now in my life is I don't like seeing people live in fear. Or hatred or in violence. And because my life was surrounded by it, uh, half my life was involved in it. Um, when you're in the military? Or no, not even just America. the military, just <laughs> growing up. Growing up um, there people? were seven of us when we grew up. There's only two of us left. What, what um, happened to the, the other one? Uh, one's dead from drugs, another one's dead, murdered, and another one's in prison. Um, yeah, so the graduating there's only two of us who are actually, you know, got a family and doing whatever. And our, I won't say that our neighborhood was any hood, you know, mm-hmm. gunshots every night. But Philadelphia can be a very different city, you know. I remember coming home from a party one night and my dad smelled marijuana on me. And it ain't too much you can get by on a homicide detective <laughs> <laughs> or a um, lieutenant or a detective. And I, I, oh my God, it was so funny because I had came in the back door and I was in the kitchen and he was like, so, you know, how was it? He was sitting there eating, I gave him the beer and I was going to walk out he said "Oh, come here for me. He said so tell me how was the point and he just had this little sly look on his face and then he just said tell you what. And he said uh, and he called my mom and said uh, could you just put this in the oven for a minute I want to take Ordy uh, for a ride and that was my nickname. So we got in the car and I was like dad where are we going? He said oh, I just want you to see something. He said, how old
0: are you, are you at 16 or something like
1: that? I, I, was four, I was still living at home at that time so I was probably 14 or 15. Okay, real yeah. kid, okay. Yeah. So he said, "I want to take you, um, show you something. I just want you to see something." I was like, oh, "Okay." And all of a sudden, I noticed when we we're driving, we start going in parts of uh, Philly, North Philly. That uh, there were parts in North Philly that looked like Lebanon. We drove up to this one place, and it was like, looked like a blown away apartment building here, and a half a little bit of another one here. And we went inside, and he took out his flashlight and this stuff out of the car, and we went inside. And we're walking up these steps, and I never forget the smell in this place to the day I I never forget it. As we're going up the steps, there is no wall here, so we're going up steps that basically we're looking outside at the stars. So we go up to this one room, and he uh, shines a light, and there are people in there, and this was what they call a shooting gallery. It's where druggies were shoot up at. And he said, "Look, I can't be with you all your life. I can't tell you what to do." He said, "You're going to." See things, do things that I probably won't have never experienced as well. I love you. You're my son. The only thing I just want you to know, life is about choices. That's all the best lesson I can give you. He said, I'm not dogging out. I'm not saying that you were smoking anything. He said, but I smelled it on you. He said, but I wanted you to see what the choices that some of these guys had made, where it's ended up. And I remember, I had always really admired my dad because um what he, what he went through. He was a, a Korean War, that, you know, uh, the racism he dealt with becoming one of the first officers in the Philadelphia uh, Police Department. And um, I had admired him, but I think there was also this tension between he and I. When we were coming back down, I'd asked him, what is all that under my foot? And he shot it down, and it was just hypodermic syringes all over the floor, and I was just like, Dad, just get me out of here, let's just get out of here. So, we were driving back home, he said, now, don't you tell your mom that <laughs> I and He said, but I just wanted you to see the reality of what I see every day. And he said, normally, I'll be screaming and yelling at you. He said, but I thought that, you know, and I said, Dad, look, I didn't smoke anything, but there were people there smoking, and I thought you were going to have a fit and stuff. He said, well, you know, uh, normally I would. Um, he said, but, you know, you you do what you... Feels fit, but I just wanted you to see. He said, "I'm not saying that you, you know, take a puff and now you're going to be a druggie for the rest of your life." He said, "But I just want you to know, life is about choices." And I never forgot that. Obviously, uh, never Obviously. ever. It made an imprint on me, and I think it, that's why uh, when I got older and been, you know, seeing people using drugs and stuff, it just never. I had had that association in my wired in my brain already that that wasn't for me. And then uh, after I got out of the military, I started consulting and again, I was still fascinated in why people did what they did. And then when I went to uni and got my degree, and and then I started learning stuff from FBI guys and secret service guys who were in the behavioral stuff. A lot of things that go on in the world can actually be dealt with differently. Hopefully when I go back to the States, there's a gentleman that I'm gonna try to meet. He's a former um, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman and he wrote a book, he's a former army ranger, it's called Killology, and his foundation studies how society is training kids to be violent. But when he come out on the other side, I think maybe he might have a perception that I did too, that there are things that we can do as a society that doesn't make people more aggressive or more violent and things, where I'm not just someone talking about violence, but I've been surrounded, immersed in it. And that now kind of certain, like kids, have would like to show them that there's a different way handling things. There's, um...
0: To me, it sounds like you're saying you're not protecting people against violence. You're mm-hmm. actually moving everyone towards a compassionate society. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the future is what we make it. So I figure if uh, like I have programs that deal talk to about bullying and, you know, we do it in an entertaining way. I have hip hop music playing and one of my long term goals is to actually run a kind of Tony Robbins type seminar, but it's for teenagers. And it has people like Pink throwing a concert, you know, and then we talk about uh, drug use. We talk about dependency on peer groups and how to overcome that.
0: How would you describe yourself now and what you do? Because it's not security, is it? No, not all the way this security. It started no. about security yeah, and yeah. the military background and a bit of biff, yeah. but it's gone entirely somewhere else. So how it's, would you actually describe yourself uh, now?
1: What I Life Force One now, is I say it's a, a consulting company, and we consult on how to mitigate or manage uh, situations that might escalate to violence. That's in a nutshell, what we do. So
0: but that, that immediately frames in my mind that it's a security business, but it's not. It's more a psychology yeah. business.
1: Uh, when you look at the website, it, it's kind of twofold. You'll see the conventional security things, like we do crisis management, mm-hmm. uh, travel security briefs for media people who are going to another country or something like that. But then there's another side, that's the behavioral science consulting where we're talking about stalking, we're talking about workplace violence, school violence, we're talking about child protection. Those are the behavioral things. Those are the things I like to say, it's education and mindset, so that we're not into the other part, the reactionary stuff. And again, like I said, I was heavy into martial arts, Eastern culture had a big influence on me when I was growing up. So that whole- Zen. Zen or that whole- um, the whole warrior, mm-hmm. uh, even one of my, even several of my programs are called Unleash the Peaceful Warrior within. That's what I mean, that the creation of uh, Life Force One was a culmination of, you know, I guess the, the hardness uh, of life that I've seen meets the Dan Milman, you know, peaceful warrior mm-hmm. part of life, the more uh, softer skill sets that um, every human being has. Mm-hmm. I did a a course on aggression management, how to manage aggressive people. Here within the library? Yeah, a lot of people were asking me, well, when I'm talking to people, your course isn't a conflict resolution. I noticed that. I was like, no, because conflict resolution means that there's a conflict.
0: It's gone too far. Yeah,
1: I said, this course is designed that you manage the person. But the one thing a lot of courses don't do is how do I manage myself? That's just one of the programs that I created, is designed to do is how to manage that.
0: Well, Earl, that's your story. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we're all over the shop. So. <laughs> yeah. Mate, it's, it's huge. huge. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for telling me your great. story. And, um, yeah, thanks very much, mate. Yeah, it was great. Okay. Thanks, thanks <laughs> mate. Bye.